I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to World Weekly for the Financial Times. I'm Gideon Rachman. Today we're looking at Hong Kong, where political tensions are mounting as both the opposition and the Chinese government appear to be digging in. Joining me on the line from Hong Kong is our correspondent there, Ben Bland, and also on the line is our Asian news editor, Victor Mallet. Now, Ben, what exactly in broad terms is happening? Why are political tensions increasing? Well, since Hong Kong was handed back by the British to China in 1997, there have always been a number of contradictions at the heart of the one country, two systems arrangement that basically allowed Hong Kong to continue with a promise of some democracy and civic freedoms like freedom of speech and association. And as we've had um, Xi Jinping come into power in China and take a much more assertive approach, that started to filter into Hong Kong at a time when Hong Kongers themselves have also become much more assertive about the rights they think they should have and the path to democracy that they want to see. And I guess these two forces have been clashing and have become locked in something of a vicious circle where Beijing is very nervous about young people in particular and others who oppose its rule and vociferously call for democracy and recently even things like self-determination or, or a very small minority independence. So Beijing is very worried and it's increasing the pressure on Hong Kong to take action against people who speak out. And those measures make young Hong Kongers and older Hong Kongers too even more worried and make some even more vociferous. So we've seen a lot of other people um, caught up in this pressure. I mean, not not least our, our colleague Victor Mallet, who's on the line, who was recently saw his work visa renewal application denied and was later uh, refused entry to Hong Kong. Um, the government has officially said it won't comment on the reasons. It doesn't comment on immigration cases, but uh, Chinese state media and a number of other strong um, government supporters in Hong Kong and Beijing have said that's linked to Victor's hosting of a talk for the Foreign Correspondents Club in Hong Kong, where they invited a guy called Andy Chan, who's the head of a small pro-independence party. And what these uh, sort of pro-Beijing advocates are saying is that that was a totally unacceptable act uh, to give a platform to this sort of outrageous opponent of Beijing's rule. And they think that's why uh, the Victor Mallet incident, as it's been called here, um, happened. The government, as I said, uh, hasn't given any official reason. Okay, so Victor Mallet, uh, you found yourself at the centre of this incident and this slightly odd situation for a journalist of being part of the story that you were covering. In retrospect, and I know it's hard to be objective about something that you're so closely involved in, but do you think it's been clear for some time that Beijing is intent on really curtailing the autonomy of Hong Kong? I, I think that's right. I mean, I last left Hong Kong in 2008. I was living there for five years between 2003 and 2008. And at that time, I think most Hong Kongers were pretty well disposed towards mainland China and Beijing. It was the time of the Beijing Olympics. You know, I wouldn't say people were ultra patriotic, but they were certainly sympathetic to Beijing and there weren't any particularly severe gripes. Ten years later, I came back, uh, eight years later, I guess, I came back in, in 2016 and there was a complete change of mood. There was a lot of resentment against Beijing. And I think this was because they had cracked down on 
democracy and on free speech and, and on demonstrations and, and so on. And so there was especially young people, there was a lot more resentment. And it's not just the media that's been affected by this. Uh, you know, the, the, the government has been sort of pushing schools and universities to curtail what is said uh, what is taught and what students say and what they what they're allowed to say it's happened in the legislature where certain legislators if they're too pro-democratic are being essentially prevented from sitting in the legislature and it started off i suppose what beijing has done is to declare that certain discussions and certain subjects are off limits completely and they've started off with the notion of separatism and hong kong independence but it's clear that the plan is to go further and we've heard sort of pro-beijing politicians talking about how it's not just independence that's a problem. It's also criticizing, for example, the notion of the one-party state. And to stop people in Hong Kong criticizing the Communist Party is a pretty big ask for a society that was previously completely free in terms of association and in terms of free speech, even if, even if it wasn't actually a sort of electoral democracy. So that's the kind of position we're now in, where, as Ben said, there are a lot of quite resentful young people. And even older people are beginning to be a bit annoyed by the way Beijing is just narrowing the space for uh, debate and for political participation uh, in Hong Kong. And the problem for the Hong Kong government is that none of this is actually uh, enshrined in Hong Kong law at all. In fact, you could argue that it runs completely contrary to the basic law, which provides for freedom of speech, which provides for freedom of association and for and for the rule of law and for a free press. So it's a kind of very awkward moment where you've got Beijing telling Hong Kong to do things. The Hong Kong government is doing them because it's appointed by the Beijing government. Uh, it's getting on with uh, it's getting on with that. And the people of Hong Kong are quite resentful about that. Ben, I mean, if one has to try to figure out why Beijing appeared to change its attitude. I mean, I, I remember last time or one of my recent visits to Hong Kong, uh, a legislator saying to me that he thought it was down to a reaction to the umbrella movement, the uh, sort of young persons, pro-democracy, protest movement of 2014, that this gave Beijing a fright that they believed subsequently that they'd given Hong Kong too much autonomy and that they were going to move in to try and control it. Do you think that was the key event or are there other things going on, like maybe a shift in Hong Kong's just less important to Beijing now and they can afford to push it around a bit more? I think the proximate cause is probably the, the Occupy movement and tens, if not hundreds of thousands of people on the streets effectively trying to force Beijing's hand at a time when around the rest of the world we'd seen these various colour revolutions. I think that was something that upset uh, the regime. I think there are also deeper things at play. One is uh, the contradictions of the basic law and one country, two systems really unwinding. How can you have a free city that's part of the world's biggest authoritarian state, particularly at a time when it's becoming even more authoritarian under Xi Jinping? So I think that's going on as well. And as I said, there's also a, a sort of interplay between what people in Hong Kong are doing and how Beijing sees that happening. Um, plus, Beijing at the same time feels it's fighting these sort of separatist movements in Tibet and Xinjiang. It's concerned that Taiwan, which is you know, de facto independent, is moving further and further away from it. Um, so I think it's quite important for Beijing to show that it's bringing Hong Kong 
under control. And I think Occupy movement um, shook their confidence, as, as has everything that's happened since. But in a way, their own actions in clamping down has, has made things worse. I mean, the other point to mention is the, the geopolitics at the moment, where we see you know, increasing tensions between the U.S. and China on economic, military, political front. And that could make things more tense here as well, because Hong Kong seems like it's caught in the middle, but of course it's part of China. And if it's forced to choose sides, then we know which way it might have to go. Uh, plus, we've seen U.S. politicians recently warning increasingly about the pressures on Hong Kong and how that might damage its status. Um, just yesterday, a congressional committee issued a report um, urging the U.S. government to reconsider exporting sensitive, uh, potentially military technology to Hong Kong. In the past, it's always seen Hong Kong as a separate market. It's a member of the WTO separately from China. But as this pressure increases on Hong Kong's autonomy, it may force the U.S. or others to look again, or, you know, indeed politicians in the U.S. and elsewhere may opportunistically, if I may say so, try and exploit what's happening here to increase the pressure on China. Mm. So, Victor, in a way, are we seeing a a long-term threat to the the Hong Kong model, if you like, because it's been so successful over the last 30 years and more as, in a way, the gateway between China and the West, uh, the place both sides felt comfortable doing business in. But if they're going to be uh, sort of pulled apart in this way, that, then that model is in danger, isn't it? I think that's right. People are now saying, you know, Hong Kong is becoming another Chinese city. I think, as Ben mentioned, it's important to realize that the the sort of increasing repression is not peculiar to Hong Kong, which is a city of six or seven million people. Uh, it's happening across China under Xi Jinping in recent years. I mean, what's peculiar about Hong Kong is that it was previously protected from that uh, by one country, two systems. And it's that protection that is being eroded and it's therefore becoming more like China, although, of course, it's not uh, anything like uh, as bad uh, as China in terms of freedoms and, and the rule of law, but it's moving in that direction. And I think that is a bit of a concern. You know, obviously, the kind of things that have happened in Hong Kong on the whole are not nearly as serious as the kind of repression we're seeing in Xinjiang in Western China, where the Muslim Uyghurs are being put into re-education camps in their thousands. You know, these are obviously much more serious human rights abuses, but the freedoms that Hong Kong people are used to are quite rapidly being eroded, unfortunately. And Ben, I mean, we're going to get a real uh, kind of flashpoint on this very issue in the coming week, aren't we? I mean, I'm I'm talking to you on Thursday the 15th, and I think next week there's a big trial beginning of people involved in the Occupy movement. Yeah, a number of the senior leaders from the Occupy movement who are professors at various uh, well-respected Hong Kong universities as a legislator and barrister and others who are going to go on trial for um, sort of inciting um, others to go to the streets and cause public nuisance. Um, and I think it's really a key trial because it's one of an increasing number we're seeing where the government is using the law, the colonial laws left to Hong Kong to throw the book, if you like, at political activists. And of course, they would say they were largely participating in civil disobedience, and they may have broken some laws, but doesn't justify serious offences. But the, the government is trying to prosecute them, you know, with serious charges that could see them jailed for, for seven years. And these people, you know, they're professors, barristers, uh, these aren't sort of the most radical elements out there. And I think people people are watching closely. The, the other interesting aspect is the reaction of the business community and what this all means for Hong Kong's 
status as, as one of the world's you know, great business cities. Now, for the most part, people are still happy doing business here. But what's interesting is that with um, the denial of um, Victor's visa, we saw for the first time chambers of commerce, uh, the American Chamber of Commerce, the British Chamber of Commerce, come out with public statements that this worried them because as a key financial center, they say that free flow of information, free, free flow of data uh, is vital to trust in, in the system. And when they see a journalist from a financial newspaper not being allowed to continue his work, that worries them you know, what it means for, for the future of information flows and Hong Kong as a financial center. And in the past, those business groups have always been very reluctant to make any comment on human rights issues and political issues for fear of upsetting the government. So the fact that they feel they have to come out now shows there's an increasing concern among business as well as Hong Kongers who are obviously, you know, disturbed to a certain extent. Yeah. And let's just finish then, Ben, on that question of the Hong Kongers reaction themselves. I mean, do you think that most of them are going to react to things like next week's trial in the end with a degree of fatalism because there's a sense that, you know, it's six, a city of six, seven million people up against the Chinese Communist Party in a country of 1.4 billion? Or do you think that you could see resurgences of protest in Hong Kong? How, how, how do you judge that balance? Talking to political activists here, to democracy activists, there's definitely a growing sense of resignation because they've tried lots of different things. They tried peaceful protest in the streets. They tried civil disobedience. They tried to get elected to the legislature, and a number of them, as Victor said, were, were effectively kicked out. So they've tried different things, and they haven't found anything that works. And now they're facing much higher penalties than the government, where they're blurring the lines in terms of you know committing crimes or whether the government accuses them of committing things that no one thought were crimes before. Um, you know, they're facing potential, you know, serious jail sentences. So that obviously deters a lot of people. If your avenues for effective action are reducing and the potential punishment for opposition is rising, um, people feel like they have to give up. But I think it's a very unpredictable situation. I was speaking to one Hong Kong academic the other day who made a comparison with uh, Catalonia under Franco, where they faced a very significant repression for a very long period of time. The language was heavily curtailed, etc. And people said, you know, would that be the death of Catalonia? But obviously, after after Franco, uh, things still re-emerged and sort of a consciousness of a people and their faith in their place is really hard to, to eradicate. So we just don't know what would bring people back out onto the streets or if they'll try and oppose in different ways. But I think with each new incident, there's sort of a growing uh, resignation, that's for sure. Okay. Well, we'll leave it there for now, but obviously it's going to be a big story uh, in the coming weeks and indeed the coming years. Thank you both very much. Thanks to Ben Bland, in Hong Kong and Victor Mallet no longer in Hong Kong. That's it for this week. Until next week, goodbye.